and thank you all for uh, welcoming me and it's good to be back with you first time in this amazing building <laughs> gonna be full one day isn't it <laughs> Um, we're looking at Proverbs, so if you want to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 3, uh, we're going to be dotting around a bit, as is uh, necessary in Proverbs, because Proverbs doesn't follow a, a pattern through, it's, it's sort of uh, picks um, or, or moves from one subject to another, but we're going to use uh, some verses from Proverbs chapter 3 as a basis this, uh, this afternoon. So let's read just a few verses from chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. Well-known verses, I guess. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled with overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Well, as we all know, the United States of America uh, has bestowed many blessings on the world and uh, one of them, 80 years ago, was a book called How to Win Friends and Influence People. It was the number one bestseller in 1937, written by Dale Carnegie, and it's been a a hot um, seller ever since. It's sold millions of copies. And the reason I think um, people have bought this book is because they're always looking for ways um, to do what sociologists call, or to, to, to heal what sociologists call interpersonal relationships. People realize that we have to get on with one another, in society, at work, with our neighbours, our colleagues, whatever it might be. So interpersonal relationships are very important. But in the Bible, we find that the family, that not just the, 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 the nuclear family, not just the uh, mum, dad and, and two children or whatever it might be, but, but the wider family network is the basis and the grounding for all our relationships in the world. Paul wrote to Timothy to give him instructions on good leadership. And he said this, The good leader must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And we could expand that, extrapolate that, and say, well, how can someone manage a company or run a business or even run the country? if he can't manage his own family well. The idea that a leader, or anybody in any position of authority, that their private life uh, is completely separate from their public life is unbiblical and it's nonsensical. We are what we are inside us. And we are what we are in private. And what we are in private is reflected uh, in what we are in public. And the book of Proverbs is primarily a uh, book of advice given by a father to his son. So we see uh, time and time again, headings, uh, chapters beginning, my son, do this, my son, do that. And it's a father giving advice to his son to prepare him for life in the world to come, 
for the relationships he's going to have to make in the world to come. Not least, his family relationships, the choosing of a wife, amongst other things. So this advice is vital. It's vital for all of us if we're going to move into the world and amongst the world in a godly way. The father gives the son advice on how to manage family relationships so that he can move into the world and manage other relationships well. So we're going to start this afternoon with some basic principles from this passage in chapter 3, and then we'll go on to look at how these principles work out in specific family situations. So verses 5 and 6 in chapter chapter 3, I think, uh, form the grounding of the whole of Proverbs, really. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now those are good words, wise words for all of our lives, aren't they? Trust the Lord, not your own wisdom. And if we do that, God will open the way forward for us and make our paths straight. And if we want our paths to be straight, if we want to know uh, the direction of our lives, where our lives are going, some meaning and purpose, for that's what making our paths straight surely means, then I think we must do three things from these verses. We must, first of all, trust the Lord. And the word trust here literally means lie down on the ground in surrender, like a, a, a conquered enemy would. In fact, lie face down before your conqueror. That's what it means. It's yielding completely to our overlord. And if we want to make sense of our family life, then the first step is to submit to God, to trust him that he knows what's best. The second thing we must do is mistrust ourselves, not to lean on or use as support our own wisdom, our own understanding. Now that's not because we're stupid or unwise. We may have God-given wisdom. We may be wise people. But it's because every part of our being has been tainted, warped by sin. And so is unreliable in giving us the wisdom of God, showing us the right way to go. I expect you might have come across instructions in flat pack furniture of how to put it together. Sometimes the first line reads like this. Before you try it your way, do it ours. We made it. We understand how it works. Don't we often skip over that and try and think, well, this screw must go here, it must go this way. But God is the designer of our humanity. And he knows how we work, but how we should work best. And we'd be foolish to disregard the maker's instructions. Uh, Especially if you're like me and you're cack-handed in putting things together. We need to follow the maker's instructions. Proverbs often describes two sorts of people, the wise and the foolish. Now, these are not intellectual qualities. They don't mean clever or stupid. A wise person is simply someone who trusts in God, follows God, obeys God. And a fool is somebody who disregards God, leaves God out of their lives. The psalm says... The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, he lives without recognition of God in his life. He's a fool, says the Bible. And the third thing that we must do is obey God's ways. That's what acknowledge him really means. 
It's more than a matter of just acknowledging that God exists and saying, well, he's out there somewhere. It's committing yourself completely to God's will, to obeying God. Jesus said in the parable of the wise and foolish builders in the Sermon on the Mount, the wise person is the one who hears God's words and obeys them, puts them into practice. So it's not just hearing, it's putting them into practice. And the foolish person is the one who hears God's words. Oh, yes, he might hear what God is saying, but he does not put them into practice, does not obey God. So be warned then, you could walk out of this building this afternoon, either a wise person or a fool, and it depends what you do with God's words that you hear from him. Do you put them into practice, or you just, do you just disregard them and live as if you hadn't heard them? So that's our side then, that's what we must do. We must trust the Lord, mistrust ourselves, and obey God's ways. But it's not all down to us. God is the one who takes the lead. In fact, unless God is central in our lives, in our family life, then we're going to fall flat on our faces. Here then are three things that God does for us. And the first thing is that he's good to us. In fact, his goodness overflows with abundance, verse 10 says. It's like having barns that are bursting, wine vats that are running over with goodness. God's generosity is staggering. He's not mean-minded. He doesn't withhold things from us. The Bible says every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. And Paul wrote, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What a wonderful phrase, what a wonderful sentence. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. He's not stingy or a wet blanket who wants to squash all the pleasure out of our lives. He's overwhelmingly generous to us. So trusting and obeying him are sensible things to do if we want a rich and fulfilling life. And the second thing God does is discipline us. Verse 11 says, Do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke. Just as we know that children need discipline, and we'll come on to that in just a moment, so God knows that we need discipline. We need pointing in the right direction. Sometimes that takes more than just a word. It takes some action from God. He disciplines us, and it's good for us to be disciplined. And thirdly, God loves us, verse 12 says, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. He loves us. God, God's love is full and free and undeserved by us. Rico Tice in the Christianity Explored course says this. He says, you are more sinful than you ever realized, but you're more loved than you ever knew. More sinful than you ever realized, but more loved than you ever knew. God's love doesn't depend on how good or bad we are, how sinful we've been. He loves you and he loves me just because he loves us. He loves us deeply. So with those basic principles in mind, we need to trust God, we need to mistrust ourselves, we need to obey God's ways, and God is good, God disciplines us, and God loves us. Let's move on then to specific family relationships. 
And the first relationship is between the husband and wife. Now, in today's society, we need to get clear what God's blueprint for male-female relationships is because there is enormous confusion these days and many uh, mistruths and untruths are put forward uh, as to how we can or should live. But God's told us quite clearly how we should live with one another as men and women. Do you know what God's first command to his newly created human beings was? What was the first thing God told men and women to do? Was it to look after the animals? Was it to um, tend the garden that he put them in? Well, you can look it up. It's in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The first thing God said to to his newly created human beings was, go and have sex. He didn't actually use those words. He said, be fruitful and multiply. That was his command. But you can't do that without going and having sex together. That was his first command. So God made human beings with a a unique and fundamental relationship between them, a a relationship for an intimate, yes, sexual relationship between men and women. But he went on to, to decree how that desire, that inbuilt desire, should be fulfilled. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 22, uh, God gave the man a suitable uh, help meet, a suitable partner, and it was a woman. Someone, uh, a human being, like him, but different, complementary to him. And then in chapter 2, verse 24 of Genesis, God gave the framework for how that relationship between them should work out. And we call that marriage, and it's very simple. Just one verse in the Bible defines what marriage is. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. That's God's definition of marriage. And it has four essential elements. Four essential elements. It's heterosexual. It's between a man and a woman. The Hebrew is quite clear It is a man and a woman. That is a definition of marriage. And whatever the government or anybody else wants to call any other relationship, it cannot be defined as marriage as far as the Bible is concerned because a marriage is between a man and a woman. It's a public institution. The man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. That's a public institution. It's for people to see. People can clearly see there is a starting point from which this new relationship begins. And it's not just for the couple. It's not just a sort of private little ceremony for them. It's good for society because it's a public uh, uh, ceremony, a public institution. Marriage benefits society. It's the bedrock from which the networks of society move out. And if we undermine marriage, the joining networks, the the ties that that hold society together begin to fall apart because we've undone the bedrock in society. It's lifelong. The word united there, be united to his wife, literally means stuck permanently to, glued to, if you like, super glued to even. It's a permanent relationship. And it's sealed by sexual union. The two will become one. Notice there, The sexual union comes after the marriage, not before it. When uh, Jane and I got married in 1973, uh, we uh, just finished our our, uh, college days, um, 
at the end, it was, I began my uh, life at college in 1969, the end of the 60s, uh, which the sexual, sexual revolution had just happened. And uh, I can tell you that uh, life in college was pretty uh, hair-raising in those days. But even so, I think the basic understanding, certainly amongst uh, older people then, was still that sex should be retained until after people had got married. Now that's just been washed out the window completely. It is assumed that you will have sex first, try it out, see if you're compatible. If not, well, forget it. If you are, well, carry on. But the Bible's quite clear. Sexual union comes after marriage. It's something that seals marriage. It's the superglue that holds marriage together. It doesn't come before. You don't try it out first. You experience it and enjoy it and it grows afterwards within your marriage. God's way is the best way and he's placed the power of this um, urge, this sexual urge, within the canopy, the protection of marriage. Now we haven't spoken much about Proverbs, so let's move to Proverbs. What does Proverbs say about all this? Well, a number of things. First thing it says is that God should be central. God should be central to the relationship between a husband and wife. Now I realise that I'm talking mainly to Christians here, but if there is anyone here today that hasn't come to faith in Christ, that hasn't put their faith in Jesus, I want to say to you that you should not fall asleep at this point. Remember that these are the Maker's instructions. They came right at the beginning of the Bible. And they apply to all human beings. Marriage is what we call a creation institution. It's not a redemption institution. It's something God gave for the whole of the human race, not just for those that trust and believe in him. So if you want your relationships to have any hope of working, then you should listen up now to what God has to say. So God should be central. Proverbs 19, 14 says that a prudent wife is from the Lord. She's not from a good family, necessarily. She's not one with a good inheritance, you know, you know, 40 cows to, to bring into the, the relationship, or whatever it might be. She comes from the Lord. Proverbs mostly talks about the qualities of wives. doesn't really mention husbands very much. I think that's probably because it's talking to a, the, the son of the, of the family who one day will go out looking for a wife. So he's saying this is the quality you should look for. But I think, you know, we can put it both ways. We can look for qualities in, in men as well. And we can say that the perfect partner, husband or wife, comes from the Lord. It's the Lord who provides a good partner. In Jesus' discussion with the Pharisees about divorce in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6, he says this, very famous words, come in the, bar- come in the marriage service. What God has joined together, let not man separate. But notice, it's God that's joined these people together. It's not them, it's not the rabbi or the priest or the vicar, it's God who joins these people together. We often say, don't we, or sometimes we say, that's a marriage made in heaven. Well, it is, literally. God makes marriages. And it's vital for us to grasp this. If you're not married here this afternoon, and hope that one day you might be, then your first action should be, well, what does God think about it? You should ask God about it. Pray about it. Does he want you to be married? 
And if he does, who does he want you to marry? Start praying about it before you ever get anywhere near meeting somebody and dating them and seeing whether it's going to be the right one or not. Start praying about it. Seek the Lord, because marriages come from God. And for those of us that are married, it's very important that we recognise that marriage comes from God. We should look at our marriages as something that God wanted and God has given us as a gift. And we should be constantly asking how our marriage, how my marriage, can honour God, bring glory to him. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 12 says, A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And many people have applied that verse to a marriage of two people with God as the centre. A three-stranded bond that's not easily broken. God is at the centre of our marriage. And having God at the centre creates a framework for a sound and secure family. Here are a few proverbs that illustrate this. Uh, 14.26 He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress for his children and it will be a refuge. A secure fortress for his children and it will be a refuge. If you want to look after your children, want them to grow up in security, then it says fear the Lord. Have the Lord central. 14.27 The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life turning a man from the snares of death. Do you have fears? Fears of the future? Fears of death even? Fears of all sorts of things? Well, fear the Lord first, says Proverbs 14.27, and you're turned away from the fear of other things, fears of whatever it might be. The fear of the Lord. 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. God is our protection. He looks after us. It doesn't mean that we always escape trouble or illness or even accident. But to know that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that nothing happens without him knowing and allowing, that gives a great sense of security, a great sense of peace. Chapter 30, verse 5. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Take God's word as your shield. Read it. Believe it. And it's a refuge that we can hide in. So let me ask husbands and wives here today, is God at the centre of your marriage? Do you pray together? Do you read the Bible together? Do you seek God's wisdom for the decisions you make? Is he there in the heart of your home? Is he there in the kitchen? Is he there in the living room? Yeah, and is he there in the bedroom as well? Does your life, your married life, revolve around what the Lord wants? Well, Proverbs tells us that that is a way, that is the way to find a good marriage, a good relationship. And what does trusting God mean for our marriages as a whole? What does it give to us? And what does it mean that we should, how should we respond in our marriages? Well, it means that we should be faithful to one another, to our partner, faithful to each other. Proverbs 5, 15 and 16 says this. It's a, almost a strange verse, but it's a lovely verse really. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. 
let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Now, he's not talking about whether you can lend your hosepipe to your next-door neighbour or, you know, share your water supplies. He's talking about our husbands and wives because it's within a section talking about husbands and wives, marriage. Talking about being faithful to each other. And faithfulness has to be the result of marriage because of this of the Genesis definition. It says the two are one flesh. Paul makes this clear uh, when he chastises the Corinthians for their sexual immorality. If you've been one with your marriage partner, how can you tear that unity apart by being unfaithful? And according to Jesus, unfaithfulness is not just a matter of the act itself. It starts in the thoughts. If you look at a woman or a man lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. We live in a sexually explicit culture, and we need to guard carefully what our eyes see. Jesus said the eye of the lamp, sorry, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. Are we looking for completion and fulfillment elsewhere than in our marriage partner? Do we, are we tempted to go looking elsewhere? I heard a story the other week uh, about, um, this was a, a Keswick, one of the speakers, um, gave this story, so it's not mine, so I'll give credit to where it's due. There were some theological students discussing the difference between complete and, uh, and finished. They were thinking about the finished work of Christ and the complete work of Christ. And one bright spark, one bright theological student came up with this. He said, "If I, I can tell you the difference between complete and finished. He said, if you're a man and you find the perfect girl, a perfect woman, and you marry her, and she's just the one for you, then you're complete. It's great. And he said, if you're a man and you marry a woman and you find out that uh, she's the wrong one, and uh, she's no good for you at all, he said, then you're finished. But he says, if, you, if you're a man and you marry the right woman, and she's perfect for you, but then your eyes wander and you go off with the wrong woman afterwards, he says, you're completely finished. God has given you, in our, or given us in our marriages, fulfillment and completion. And we need to watch that, take it seriously, be careful what we look at. Paul goes on to say in the Corinthians that we have the Holy Spirit living within us. I find this a great comfort, but it's a challenge as well. God is there in me all the time, everywhere I go, everything I do, everything I look at. The Holy Spirit is there with me. Do we want to share with the majestic Holy Spirit of God that website we're looking at? That porn site, perhaps, that we're looking at? that sleazy celebrity magazine that we read, the film that we watch, that we uh, recorded, just because we're thinking, oh, there might be some hot scenes in it. They're only part of the film, and it's a good film anyway. But that's what we're looking for. No, be satisfied, says the Lord. says Proverbs, with the person God has given you. Proverbs 5.19 says, She's a loving doe, a graceful deer, May her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Who said the Bible was a stuffy old book? God has given us good things. Don't look for them elsewhere. 
Marriage is not a poor relation of sexual activity. Whatever the world might tell you, marriage is not boring while other forms of sex are fun and you can go looking for them elsewhere. Or if you get bored, you can just cast aside marriage and try something else. Paul uses marriage, as we read from Ephesians, as an illustration of the love Christ has for the church. And there's no greater, no deeper, no more fulfilling love than that, than what Jesus has for his church. And our marriages should reflect that, that great, deep love. Proverbs 5.18 says it all. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Paul gives us the pattern for husband-wife relationships in Ephesians 5 that we read earlier. And it tells us that the wives should submit to their husbands. Contentious verses, perhaps? I don't know. Some thought so. And that husbands should love their wives. So much so that they should give up their own lives for them as Christ gave up his life for the church. I'm not going to go into that in detail because we're not studying Ephesians, we're studying Proverbs. But just to say that married couples are going to have to work out what submission and love mean for them. Notice that, uh, I'm glad we read that the first verse in that uh, section, verse 21 in Ephesians 5, where it says, submit to one another. It's not just the wives submitting to husbands, it's submitting to one another. At the very least, what that will mean is considering the needs of your spouse before you think of yourself. Husbands, it means taking care of and responsibility for the well-being of your wife. Wife, it means respecting your husband's position and supporting him. And boy, does he need support. I do, anyway, most times. I think one of the problems in society today is that men have lost the respect of others, and perhaps women as mostly women, and uh, it's causing problems. Let's respect one another. Let's respect especially the position that men have. Just a final remark about marriage. We've talked about the marriage state as if it was right for everyone. And if you're not married here today, it might seem to you that you're being left out of God's plans. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. If marriages are made in heaven, then singleness is as well. God doesn't leave any of his children out. There may be many reasons why it's right for a person to remain single. Paul says it's often better to be single because then you can give yourself wholeheartedly to God's work. You don't have obstreperous children waking up at five o'clock in the morning. You don't have sleepless nights. You don't have dirty nappies. You don't even have the day-to-day tensions that even the best marriages have within them. Jesus gives two other reasons why people may remain single. He says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, that some may be born unable to have normal sexual relations. This may be because of a physical disability, or it could be because of sexual orientation. I'm not going to dwell on this, but let me just say that same-sex attraction can be real, and it can be real for a Christian. But the Bible is clear that homosexual practice is not permitted for the God-fearing person. Sex is between a husband and a wife within marriage. Therefore, such a person, I believe, should count it as a privilege to be able to serve God wholeheartedly 
as a celibate individual, just as many heterosexual people do. I just want to read a little quote from a a book by Vaughan Roberts. Vaughan Roberts is uh, the rector of St. Ebb's Church in Oxford. Uh, He's written lots of books, and he is... um, he has recently come out as confirming that he has same-sex attractions. He's a celibate man, but he said that he struggles with same-sex attractions. And asked here, does this disclosure that same-sex attraction is one of your personal battles mean that you are defining yourself as a homosexual? And this is part of Vaughan's reply. All of us are sinners and sexual sinners, all of us. But if we've turned to Christ, we are new creations redeemed from slavery to sin through our union with Christ in his death and raised with him by the Spirit to a new life of holiness while we wait for a glorious future in his presence when he returns. These awesome realities define me and direct me to the kind of life I should live. In acknowledging that I know something of all the eight battles, including homosexual attraction that are covered in this book, I am not making a revelation about my fundamental identity other than, like all Christians, I am a sinner saved by grace, called to live in the brokenness of a fallen world until Christ returns and brings all our battles to an end. Our sexuality doesn't define us. As Christians, what defines us is our relationship to God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And that we should celebrate, and we should celebrate it in whatever situation Jesus has put us. Jesus' other reason in Matthew chapter 19 that people should remain single is that they may be unable to have sexual relations in later on in life. Again, that could be through illness, disability, or it could be through the loss of a spouse, and you suddenly find yourself in a single situation again. Whatever your situation is, I want to say that God has not abandoned you. God has not said, right, that's it, you're finished now, your life is over. God loves you dearly, and he wants to shower his good gifts on you. He has a place for you in his kingdom and a plan for your life. Jesus was single and never experienced sexual intercourse, but he was the most fulfilled and complete human being who has ever lived. Follow his example and find your fulfillment in Christ. And I want to say to the church as well, we call ourselves the church family. Are we really a church family? Do we include the single people? Do we invite them into our homes, let them play with our children, have the experience of having children around them, which they might long for? Do we welcome them on outings, include them in all we do? Are we really the family of God for everybody in our family? Well, it's time to move on to the place of children in the family. And the first thing to say is that children get the vast majority of their direction from their parents. So the advice of chapter 4 in Proverbs, verse 3, is vital. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender and only a child of my mother, he taught me, and he said... Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. The prime source of teaching for a child is his parents. Perhaps a parent's lifeline 
comes in uh, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. From it. Now, having godly parents is not a guarantee that your children will turn out little angels, uh, but it's a good start. It's the best start that they could have. Teaching your children the ways of the Lord is not primarily the Sunday school teacher's job. If you're a parent here today, it's your job. You as a parent have the responsibility of teaching your children the way of the Lord. So please, mums and dads, pray with your children, read the Bible with them, give them Bible storybooks to read, teach them the way to behave, and be absolutely frank with them about gospel truths. We used to drum it into our children when they were quite small. How do you get to heaven? And I'd wait for an answer. If it wasn't forthcoming, we'd give them the answer. And the answer is, by having your sins forgiven and trusting in Jesus. It's not by being good, by saying yes to mummy, or helping with the washing up, or going to Sunday school. It's having your sins forgiven. Even from a small child can understand that. The things you've done wrong, Jesus will forgive you if you say you're sorry. And trusting him, that's how you get to heaven. And Sunday school teachers, I know they're out there, but you can pass this on to them or they can listen to it online. Sunday school teachers, please never give any hints to children that if they are good, God will love them or love them more or will accept them. Don't even hint that that's how it is. You know the gospel. You know the gospel of grace. You know it's the grace of Jesus. You know it's the forgiveness of your sins. You know it's trusting Jesus that brings you into relationship with God. It's no different for children. It's the same for them. So tell them so. Don't hide it. Don't be embarrassed. Don't try and tell them like everybody else does, that if they're good, everything will be all right, or God will love them. Tell them they need God's forgiveness, and they need to trust Jesus. And that leads us on to discipline then. Proverbs has got something to say about discipline, quite a lot to say about disciplining children. And the first thing it says is that you must do it. Chapter 13, verse 24 says, He who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him, careful to discipline your children. As we saw at the beginning, disciplining is something God does. He does it with us. Therefore, it's a good thing. If God does it, it's good, a good thing to do. What is it? What is discipline? It's putting someone through a difficult, perhaps painful experience so that they learn a better way to go. They learn from their mistakes and they learn a better way forward. God does it with us. You may wonder why God has allowed this illness or that situation, that difficult situation at work or whatever it might be. There could be many reasons, but one reason you should explore is that God wants to teach you something. He wants to teach you something about your uh, way of living or about the way in which he wants you to go in the future. And the most important thing he wants to teach you is that you learn to trust him and obey him completely in every situation. We've just sung, haven't we, uh, the, the words from Psalm 23. When I walk through, the, 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 the old version has it, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. We can only walk through dark places in our lives if we have God beside us and we're trusting him. 
And that's what he wants us to do. So why do we need to discipline our children? I think there are two reasons. Firstly, because, of a, because a child has no experience of what is right or wrong. Chapter 29, verse 15 says, The rod of correction imparts wisdom, but a child left to himself disgraces his mother. Remember what we said about wisdom and folly at the beginning. Wisdom is trusting God. Folly is ignoring God. And this verse says a child doesn't know how to do that, doesn't know how to trust God, doesn't know that doing his own thing and leaving God out is folly. He or she is unwise as far as that goes, and we must teach them wisdom. And that sometimes needs discipline. And the second reason is that children are sinners. We, uh, on Christianity Explored, of course I run in, in our church, uh, we look at the parable, well not the parable, the events in, in Jesus' life when, they, when the parents brought little children to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples pushed them away and said, no, go away. And we look at why Jesus accepted the children. What it is, what is it about children? And the first thing that everybody says is, oh, because they're innocent. And I have to say to them, are they? Are they innocent, really? Have you brought up children? Have you been a child? Well, I have. And I, as far back as I can remember, I know that I'm not innocent. One of the earliest things I can remember about my childhood, and I know it's before I was five, because we moved house when I was five, and it was in the old house, is I got so cross with my brother that he was in a pram that I pushed him through a hedge in a pram. And that's when I was less than, less than five. Uh, children are not innocent. Yes, they're sweet. Uh, and yes, they haven't learnt the ways of the world, but they are not innocent. From the earliest age, they know how to wrap people around their little fingers to get what they want. They are selfish, basically. That's how they're brought up. That's how they come into the world. They are not innocent. What it is about children is they come with nothing. They can offer nothing. They don't deserve their parents' love. Their parents love them if they are in a loving home. They feed them. They clothe them. They can't pay for it. They come with nothing in their hands. And that's how we should come to God, with nothing in our hands. We should trust God coming with nothing to to offer him. But children are sinners. They're not sweet and innocent. They They need discipline to show them when they go wrong, when they need to repent, when they need to say sorry, when they're trying to get their own way and they should share instead. They need discipline to point them in that direction. So for these two reasons, children are not wise, they don't know how to follow God, and they're sinners... They need discipline. We need to discipline our children. And it's not just to improve their behaviour so that when we go out um, for tea, they don't disgrace us. You know, I was, um, my father-in-law used to take us out. He was quite a wealthy man. He used to take us out to hotels uh, as a family. Um, we used to go away at Christmas for, for four or five days. And uh, my son completely disgraced us, one in this fairly posh hotel, the first thing he did was ask for tomato sauce to go with the dinner. I mean, that was the first absolute disgrace. The second thing he did was shake the tomato sauce up and it went all up the white wallpaper behind us. But we don't discipline our children so that they behave well necessarily. That's part of it, obviously. But it's to change their hearts. It's to change the way they are inside. Chapter 9, verses 9 to 11 of Proverbs says this. Just read it, chapter 9. 
I got the right verse. No, it's chapter 2, sorry, wrong verse. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. It says, if you follow the Lord's wisdom, you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path, for wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be a pleasure to your soul. Discretion will protect you and understanding will guard you. We're not looking just at outward behavior here. We're looking at a change of heart, changing our hearts, entering our God's wisdom, entering our souls. And that's why we should be disciplining our children. So how should we discipline our children? Now, Proverbs talks about rods quite a lot. My father didn't actually have a rod at home. He once hit me on the hand with a carving knife steel when my hands were on the table and drew blood across my knuckles. I think he regretted that ever since. But but, uh, I don't think uh, we should necessarily uh, say that we should use corporal punishment beating our children all the time. It's not a carte blanche for corporal punishment. You can only tell what a child will respond to by trial and error. Paul says in Ephesians, in that uh, chapter we just read, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Don't over-discipline them so that they wear out with with the the being told off all the time. One child will be as good as gold if you you take their iPad off them for an hour. Another will need perhaps stricter measures. You have to find the right way for your children. The baseline, however, is to discipline the way God disciplines us. And it's always with love. God loves us. He disciplines us with love. So don't do it when you're angry. Don't lose your temper with your children. If you get angry with what your children are doing, have a cooling off period. Send them to their room and you go to your room. Cool off and come back and then decide what sanction is needed. A peaceful family life does not come with letting children do what they like. Chapter 29, verse 17 says, Discipline your son, and he will give you peace. He will bring delight to your soul. If you let children run wild, they don't bring peace. They bring chaos into the household. I think it's striking how much there is in Proverbs about joy and peace. The result of much of what this book teaches us is not so much a good life, but it's joy, joy to the heart, joy to the soul. Chapter 23, verse 24 says, The father of a righteous man has great joy. He who has a wise son delights in him. May your father and mother be glad. May she who gave you birth rejoice. There should be great joy within the family, joy with your children, even when you're disciplining them. Joy together as a family. Joy when you do things together. Joy, yes, when your parents are, when your children are good. And your parents are good too. And joy when you share life together. And it's not just within that immediate family circle. It goes down the generations. Chapter 17, verse 6 says, Children's children are a crown to the aged, and parents are the pride of their children. It ripples out through the generations when our family life is secure and safe in the Lord. Well, there's lots more we could say. Uh, I'm sure you, if you go through more of Proverbs, much, much more you'll find. But let me just finish on a personal note here. Neither marriage, nor parenthood, nor even being a child are always easy. But there is great joy. I have the joy of being married to a, a wonderful godly wife. 
She's poorly at the moment, so I'd be glad if you pray for her. She's in hospital at the moment. I have two children who have grown up to love and serve the Lord. I have four grandchildren, one of whom at the age of uh, um, 10, he's now 11, at the age of 10 gave his life to the Lord and is following the Lord, for which I'm very grateful. The credit for all this doesn't go to me, it goes to the grace and mercy of God and all that he's done for us. I have made many mistakes. I've seen my wife weep buckets over our son who went for a five-year wander away from the Lord. And I'm sure many of you or some of you have had that experience and it's so painful. But you have to keep trusting God. You have to keep praying and seeking him. The Lord has had to deal with my pride in many ways. One of the ways he was, he gave me a time of, quite a long time of painful stress and difficulty and hardship. As a family, we've been tested, sometimes almost beyond endurance. We've been made homeless twice by churches, I would add, and had hard times to go through. Sometimes we've not known which way to turn. But, and here's the but, God is a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. And he has brought us to a place of peace and joy. I'm sure there'll be tough times ahead, but his discipline and his love mean that we can trust him implicitly. And it's in those hard times, perhaps, that I learned to trust God. I'll tell you one story. Um, I was, uh, we were finishing a, a placement uh, in a church in, in North Yorkshire and due to take up another one. Um, in another church, and I'd been to, we'd been to that new church uh, to share in their service, um, being led to believe that that's where the Lord was calling us, calling me to serve. Um, but at the end of the service, uh, I was taken on one side and told, basically, we don't want you. Uh, this is not the place for you. Uh, we had nothing else, I had no home to go to, nothing else um, lined up, didn't know which way to turn. Uh, and we drove back across the North York Moors in the, in the dark, dark and just stopped at the top of the moors and my wife and I prayed and handed the situation to God. Within the next uh, week or two, uh, I'd been given a place here at Sheffield to do some more theological training, which is what I wanted to do. Um, we'd uh, found or been offered a place to live in Sheffield, a, a man's belonging to a Baptist church to, to share, and somebody within the church, without any prompting, had given me a sum of money, um, which for which I, you know, I didn't know how, what, how, how I would need it. And, but when it, we came to move, it was such short notice. We had two weeks' notice to move. I found the only man, the only removal company who could who could move us. Um, had him in to, to to look at the, the furniture of the household. Um, I said, "Okay, you can do it in a fortnight's time." He said, "Yes, I can do it." And I said, "How much?" And he gave me a figure, and it was the exact figure that I'd been handed the week of the money that I'd been handed the week before by somebody in the church. Uh, God just went boom like that and said, this is where you're going. So from complete upset and disappointment and bringing it to the Lord, um, God just set us on a new direction, basically. Um, But it isn't easy. You know, we have to trust God. We have to follow him and believe him and obey him. Well, I encourage you to do that in your family life, in your marriages, and with your children. Trust God, obey him, and follow his ways. And Proverbs and the rest of the Bible says, it's not going to be easy. Life will not be a bed of roses. But you will know that your paths are straight. You'll have a way to go, and the Lord will be with you.
So let's pray together, shall we?